I invite you to turn with me once more in your hymnals to page 785 as our Old Testament Scripture reading to us this morning comes from Psalm chapter 2. It's an important psalm, one that we'll see has resonances with our New Testament passage and sermon text this morning. Here, uh, the psalmist speaks of the supremacy of the Lord's anointed one, the Christ I'll read the words in regular print and ask that we respond corporately with the words written in bold. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger, and he terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your path. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And notice what we find in this psalm located in verse 8, where the Lord says to his anointed one, the Christ, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Now if you'll turn with me, your New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Starting a new sermon series this morning. I'll give you a warning. We'll be in this book for quite a while. My guess is we might almost be done with the Sermon on the Mount by this time next year. And that'll bring us about a quarter of the way through the Gospel of Matthew. It's a big book, but it's so important as it speaks to us of our King and the grace He gives and the law he gives his people. Matthew opens with a genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 is our sermon text this morning. Here now the reading of God's word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, 
Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, and Abiad was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ were 14 generations. That's how Matthew begins his good news. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and as we look at this laundry list of names, we wonder what good news is entailed in here. We ask that You would give us a sanctified diligence to heed Your Word, that we might believe Your Gospel. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I was 15 when my grandfather died, and for my inheritance... My grandfather on my mom's side left me two things. The first thing he left me were the collected works of that old Western author, Louis L'Amour, one of his favorite writers. Really nice leather-bound set that I actually have still sitting in my office. The second thing he had bequeathed to me was this little green hardback book, the simple words entitled, Our Heritage. It's an old book, recounts the history of the people of Cherokee County, North Carolina, from 1540 to 1955, and it divides the story up according to the families that lived there over those generations in the backwoods of the Appalachian Mountains. And there in the back of the book, under the last name West, was the history of my mother's family, including the names of my mom my aunt. There in the front of the book, given to me, inscribed by my grandfather, says, to be given to Charles Williams. This was my inheritance. Our genealogies tell an awful lot about us. It doesn't matter whether you come from a, a significant family or not. Bound up in the history of your family is the history of your own identity. Before the Industrial Revolution and the invention of the automobile, our family history, one's own family genealogy, provided the major context within which one understood his or her own personal history. How many of y'all have ever uh, been uh, to a family reunion and sat around a campfire uh, with family members whom you might not know, but people just rattling off names and embedded in the rattling of the names are even the assumed stories that have been passed on uh, among family uh, get-togethers and gatherings and holidays. 
genealogies tell you, your significance in the world and might even signify the inheritance that is your own. Might I suggest to you this morning that you cannot understand the significance of Jesus of Nazareth apart from his own family history. At the very least, your understanding of the person and work of Christ will be seriously impoverished without it. What's so significant about a child born in a barn to a poor family in a backwater town of a backwoods country over 2,000 years ago? To know the good news, the gospel of the birth of Jesus, we must understand the history of his own human family, the nation of Israel. That's our task this morning. It's a fairly simple task to rehearse Israel's history according to the shape and the contours that are given before us in this genealogy. You see in the opening verse, Matthew lays before us the significance of Jesus' own family history as his own forefather according to the flesh was not only David, David the king of Israel, but also Abraham, the father of many nations. So we'll recount Israel's history in four parts. The period from Abraham to David. You see that there in verses 1 to 6. The period from David to the exile, verses 6 to 11. From the exile to Christ in verses 12 to 16. And then from that, I'd like us to take some time to consider the significance of Christ's arrival as the author narrates it there in verse 17. So four points this morning, not just three, but four, but hopefully still keep it somewhat within proper time limits. Abraham, David, the exile, and the Messiah. We begin at the beginning of the narrative quite literally. Matthew begins by recounting the genealogical record of Jesus Christ. Quite literally in the Greek, it reads the Biblos, Genesios, quite literally the book of Genesis. The book of beginnings. Here the author begins by quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. And we have to ask ourselves, why does the author begin his story of Jesus with the book of Genesis? We need to remember that our English Bibles, as we have before us, which includes the chapter and verses. Those chapter and verses are a later addition to the Bible. It's not a bad thing. It helps us locate important passages, perhaps passages of Scripture that are dearly beloved, ones that we want to memorize. But we must remember that uh, when Moses wrote under inspiration of the Spirit, he did not write, okay, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and now on to verse 2, and now on to verse 3. He simply began by telling the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. And that's how ancient Israel would have thought of it. They would not have conceived of Genesis as consisting of 50 chapters, but 10 books. Why do I say that? 10 times we see in uh, the book of Genesis this repeated refrain following the prologue of Genesis 1-1, beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, this is the book of generations. The Biblos Genesios, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the book of the Genesis, the generations. Chapter 2, verse 4 of heaven and earth. 
Genesis 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And so the list goes on. The rhythm, the organizing principle to reading and grasping the narrative to the book of Genesis has to deal with the ten genealogies that are given, almost as bookmarks, as opening introductions to new sections in the book of Genesis. As we read the book of Genesis, we find that it begins with the the, the Genesis, the generations of heaven and earth, and it begins to narrow its focus down on one particular line, the offspring of Abraham. We know why that's the case, don't we? When Adam and Eve rebelled against the Lord in the garden in Genesis 3, rather than leaving them to their own devices, what does the Lord promise? Though Adam had allied himself with the great serpent and mutiny against God, the Lord says, I will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. And there will be a son who comes from the woman who will crush the serpent's head under his feet. The question as you read the book of Genesis is, who is this offspring of the woman who will crush Satan's head, the head of the adversary? That is what Satan means. When will this promised offspring arise to slay the dragon. And so as you read these genealogical records, as you work your way through the book of Genesis, you ask, is this new person who arises on the scene, is he the one who will put death to death? Remember, death being the very thing that Satan had ushered into the world by seducing the woman and leading Adam to sin. Well, we find out right away it's not Cain. Cain's not the promised offspring. He slays his own brother. We also find as we continue reading the book of Genesis, it's not those outside the line of Noah. They were all killed in a massive flood. Even as Noah's family repopulates the earth, we find that the nations continue their attempt to overthrow the Lord. They they continue in this line of the serpent of seeking to overthrow the king of heaven and earth. Yet from among these, the Lord signals and singles out one particular individual, Abraham, descended from Eve, whom he chooses to bless. And he gives Abraham a promise, actually a series of promises, doesn't he? That from Abraham will come an offspring who will bless the nations. Not offsprings, Paul is clear to point out in Galatians 3, but offspring, singular, one individual who will bless the world. Genesis chapter 17 hints that this will in fact be a royal offspring. Kings shall come from him. Genesis chapter 22, that this promised son will possess the gate of his enemies. This is the chosen seed who will slay the dragon and liberate the nations from Satan's oppression. From Genesis 12 to the end, the narrative centers on that line from which the great king will come, descended from the woman through the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then of course through one of his 12 sons, Judah. 
At the end of Genesis, we see the great promise that the royal line will be found within the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49, chapter 10, the scepter will not depart from that tribe, the tribe of Judah. And yet the book of Genesis ends, and the chosen offspring has not arrived. Death still reigns, the serpent still slithers. When will the promises of God be fulfilled? Continue working your way, next book, the book of Exodus, the special family line has in fact been enslaved. How can they bless the nations when they are under the thumb of the wicked Pharaoh? You read the book of Isaiah, the book of Ezekiel, particularly Isaiah 27 and Ezekiel 29. The prophets will look back on this time and they will call Pharaoh this the great dragon and the horrific serpent. Has the serpent been crushed once and for all? Where the Lord raises up Moses from the line of Israel to deliver Israel from the serpent's grasp. Is Moses the promised one to come? No. He's not from the line of Judah, first off, and second, he's not even allowed to enter the promised land because he too sins against the Lord. And yet before Moses died, he foretold that the Lord would raise up one from Abraham's family, one from his brothers, who would be greater than Moses. Moses says, listen to him. So the Bible continues the story tracing the history of Israel, centering on this one particular question. Who and when will this promised one come to deliver us from death? This is the very thing that 1 Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, isn't it? That this salvation promised long ago was promised by those who inquired into the person and timing of the arrival of this anointed figure, the Christ. Of course, Joseph had foretold that the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Israel clamors for a king as soon as they enter the promised land. Although they want a king for all the wrong reasons, they ask for a king and they take to themselves a king, not from the tribe of Judah, but from the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, a man who stands head and shoulders quite literally above the rest. And we see what a failure that turned out to be. A disobedient and wicked king Probably the greatest tragedy in the Old Testament is the life of Saul. So the kingdom is wrested from his hands. It is torn from his fingers. It is given to a little runt, a shepherd boy from the line of Judah. A little boy named David descended from Abraham, descended from Eve. The Lord promises to David that he will give an everlasting throne and a dominion to one of David's sons. I want you to see how the promises of God continue to build off of one another in the Old Testament. There's this almost organic flowering, this development that takes place as every successive promise of the Lord has in view the previous promises that the Lord has already given to give just enough food to feed the people of God by faith as they continue to look towards the coming of this chosen offspring. Perhaps this may, helps make sense why the Old Testament is so concerned with the genealogies. How many of us have read through the Old Testament? You get to, for instance, First Chronicles, and you're like, nine chapters of genealogies? Kind of fast forward through it. 
The Bible's concerned with identifying who this promised one will be. David's the son of Abraham, the son of Eve. From David will come one who will embody all the promises of God that God had given to Eve, to Abraham, and to David. David begins to sing of this chosen one, this anointed figure, that Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. The Greek word there is Christ. So we're reminded Christ is a title, it's not a last name. So David, under inspiration of the Spirit, begins to sing of the coming of this Christ in the Psalms. As we had read Psalm 2 a few moments ago, why do the nations rage, David asks. Why do the kings of the earth take counsel against the Lord and take counsel against His anointed one? Why do the kings of the earth take counsel against the Lord's Christ? The designated title for this royal son of David who will sever the serpent's head. Remember, the Lord himself had promised to David, one of your offspring will sit on the throne. Not just for a little bit. He'll sit on an everlasting throne. He is one who will slay the serpent's head. You have to keep in mind Genesis 3 as you re- in mind as, as you read the, the Old Testament. This is why when you're reading even the story of David and Goliath, When David comes, this little runt shepherd boy comes and he slays the leader of the Philistine army. A lot of English translations will say that Goliath was covered in a coat of mail. It's okay translation, but quite literally. Hebrew reads that he was covered in serpentine scales. It was Goliath who is a picture of the serpent. And so when David severs the head of Goliath, we are given a picture of what David's greater son will come to do. Prophetic picture. The prophets love this. When the prophets begin to speak under inspiration of the Spirit, they continue to attest to the work of this offshoot of David's line. The stump of Jesse, the offshoot, the branch The Hebrew word there is Nazarim. Or as we'll see later in this chapter, the Nazarene, the branch of David. Think of what Isaiah himself promises in the opening chapters of his prophecy that this son of David, this royal heir, will be born of a virgin, given as a gift to God's people upon whose shoulders not just a small kingdom will rest, but the heavenly kingdom where he rules a kingdom whose boundaries are not restricted to a sliver of land in Palestine, but whose kingdom shall have no end. It is a kingdom that continues to expand and to grow and to increase. That here is a king who will rule with justice, righteousness, and mercy. One who is clothed in the Spirit, who has been anointed and invested by the Spirit to rule and to teach with wisdom. To come to the aid of the meek in faithfulness and integrity. That's Isaiah chapter 11. One who is not only born of a virgin, in other words, one who is human, but one who is himself called the mighty God. The Prince of Peace. You see, the prophets foretell that this chosen one born from the line of Eve, from the line of Abraham, from the line of David, is one who is himself also God in the flesh. Great promises. 
And yet you continue reading your way through the first half of the Bible and you keep asking, where is he? Where is the promised one to come? When we compare the promises of the prophets to the reality of David's own sons, as you read First and Second Kings, we're not only disappointed, but disgusted by their behavior. By the wickedness, the treachery, the idolatry, the, uh, the, the, the gross sexual sin, the perversion that, that exists within this line. You go, where, where is this promised king who will rule in righteousness? One who will reign forever. All these other kings died. Even David himself dies. Peter has to remind the people of Israel at Pentecost. David himself who says that the Lord would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. Peter says David couldn't have been talking about himself because he still remains dead and in the grave. So the promised one is not David, but one of David's sons. Solomon comes close. In many ways, Solomon looks like a new Adam. Here's one who discerns good from evil, one who rules in the midst of this giant garden temple. He calls it the forest of Lebanon. His throne is situated between two massive trees. It gives you a picture of Eden over and over and over again. Here's one who establishes the true worship of God by building a temple in the Lord's name. And the nations flock to hear of the wisdom of this anointed son of David. Is Solomon the one? Well, you read of the great tragedy of 1 Kings 1 to 11, the rise and fall of Solomon. Even with all of his wisdom, Solomon proves the fool as he is led astray by many, many women. The kingdom is divided, the northern kingdom spirals into idolatry and is destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, ah, that kingdom, that line from whom the Messiah has been promised to come, continues, but it soon follows that same trajectory. The trajectory of idolatry and apostasy. There are some good kings. You think of Josiah's reign. You think of Hezekiah. Do some really great things, but yet the Bible is still pointing out the significant flaws even in their reign. Their reigns are short-lived. They do not slay the dragon. They do not put death to death. Instead, every one of them die. They are laid to rest with their fathers, and they to this day remain dead. Because the kings of Judah and with them the nation, because they plunge into idolatry and pursue other gods, they are exiled from their homeland. The throne in Jerusalem stands empty. And we are left asking, where is the Christ? If you're familiar with your Old Testament, this is in fact how the Old Testament ends. Biggest cliffhanger in the history of mankind. I remember seeing Empire Strikes Back as a kid, thinking, how can Han Solo be put in carbonite? And this is how the movie ends. It has nothing on the way in which the Old Testament ends. Where are the promises of God? Israel's promised this great kingdom with a righteous king that sits on the throne, but by the time of the first century, Israel is enslaved, as it were, or at least under the thumb of the Romans, there's a puppet king who sits on the throne, and he looks an awful lot like Pharaoh. Herod the Great does, as we'll see in the coming weeks. He's not even a true Jew. He's an, he's an Edomite, a genealogical descendant of one of Israel's ancient enemies. Where is this promised king? Even as Israel is brought back from exile, you read of that in Ezra and Nehemiah, 
Even on their return, however, Nehemiah cries out to the Lord, even as they're allowed back in their own homeland, behold, we are slaves to this day. In the land that you have given to our fathers, behold, we are slaves. Where is the great liberty and the freedom that have been promised with the arrival of the Christ? No king sits on the throne. Death still rules the world. Where is this everlasting kingdom of which Isaiah had promised? Where is this new world where death is put to death and the curse of death has been undone? Where is the forgiveness of sins needed to free us from the curse of death? Even as you look at the the old sacrificial system, it's very clear it's not found in the Levitical sacrifices. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. If the Old Testament animal sacrifices were of any uh, worth or, or lasting value, then they wouldn't have to be repeated. And yet they have to be repeated continually day in and day out. The priests keep on dying, so new priests have to arise. That's why David, under inspiration of the Spirit in Psalm 110, looks towards that day when another priest from a different order, not the order of Levi, but according to the order of Melchizedek, will arise one who holds the power of an indestructible life, one where you don't have to worry about the new high priest dying and having to train another one. Rather, anticipating anticipating a day where Psalm 110 speaks of this priest, High priest also being the great king and Messiah who reigns forever. Where the forgiveness of sins is a done deal once and for all. Where is it? Old Testament ends saying it hasn't arrived yet. And yet we see here why the genealogies are so important, don't we? Because the biblical authors are obsessed in a real way, in a good way, of identifying who the true heir is going to be. It just couldn't be anybody. It had to be somebody who descends from a particular lineage, one who would be the proper heir to this family line. Now, if you look at your English Bibles, the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. We see the promise uh, that Malachi gives that one is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the way for the Lord's own arrival as he comes to clean house. That's good. Well and good. It's not the last book you find in the Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament. It's the last book in the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament. It is First and Second Chronicles. You look at First and Second Chronicles, first nine chapters are what? Genealogies. The end of Second Chronicles ends with the seat in, of David's throne still vacant. But it ends with a call for the rightful king to Jerus- uh, of Jerusalem to return to Jerusalem and to restore proper worship of the living God by building a temple. And if you were to examine Matthew's genealogy carefully, you will notice this that Matthew is giving us an abridgment of First Chronicles 1-9. to In other words, we should see Matthew as the proper sequel to the end of Second Chronicles. The proper sequel to the whole of the Old Testament. 
What we see here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 is Matthew now picks up where the chronicler leaves off. The chronicler left off with the genealogy that ended with the exile, Jehoiakim, and his family being sent to exile. But here, Matthew, having access to the records which were still kept in the temple, in his own day, the proper genealogy continues to fill the line and picks up where the Old Testament narrative has left off. Following the line of Jeconiah all the way down to a righteous carpenter from the house of David, a man called Joseph. Joseph, as we'll see next week, is not the biological father of Jesus, but Joseph does become the legal father and guardian of Jesus. That's why Matthew is so concerned with giving us Joseph's lineage, whereas Luke is concerned with giving us Mary's lineage to show that, that Jesus is descended from Abraham and David according to both lines. I think it's so ironic here that the author of this gospel, a tax collector, would be used by the Lord to speak of a righteous king who would rule in justice and integrity. But such is uh, the great smile that the Lord gives He uses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty and the strong. And as Jesus is born, and we'll talk about the circumstances, the miraculous circumstances of his birth next week, we'll see that though a puppet king of the Roman government sits on the throne in Jerusalem, Herod is not the true king. The true heir to the throne is not found in a palace, but is born to a peasant couple. As we'll see next week, the one who sits on the throne at the time of Jesus' birth is one who looks and acts like that great serpent, the Pharaoh of old. So Matthew kicks off his gospel with a bang. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. You read the opening chapter to Matthew, you think, how is this good news just reading a laundry list of names? But when you think about the significance of, of, of a genealogy uh, uh, in the life of ancient Israel, you would see how this would set people's hearts on fire. As Matthew heralds the arrival of the long-awaited Christ who comes in the most unlikely of circumstances. By opening with this abridged chronology of the, of the chronicler, Matthew signals to his hearers that the fulfillment of all the hopes and the expectations of Israel have come true with the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. We've seen how the Old Testament is replete with so many genealogies. Now, perhaps we begin to grasp why. The saints of old were concerned with identifying the child of promise, the one who would sit on David's throne, the one who would deliver them, not just from some political tyrant of the Roman Empire, but one who would deliver them from Satan himself, one who would deliver them from the curse of death, one who would inaugurate an everlasting kingdom where death no longer reigns. What we have before our eyes is not the rise of yet another king who dies and passes into obscurity. Here we are given the genealogy of one born of a virgin who holds the power of an indestructible life that he, though slain, now lives, not just in spirit, but raised bodily from the dead to demonstrate that death does not have power over him. 
Jesus crucified and raised says to the Apostle John, I hold now the keys to death and hell. The possessor of heaven and earth, that offspring of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, who in one fell swoop has come to disarm rulers and authorities, to put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. The one who has simultaneously nailed our sins to that cross, that the curse of death might be undone and Satan's power shattered. Here we are told of a king who returns to Jerusalem to build a temple, and yet he does not rebuild a temple made of mortar and brick and stone, but a temple of living flesh and bone. As Peter himself writes to the church, says, you are the temple, a living temple, Christ himself being the cornerstone, the temple being a constitution of those redeemed by the blood of this king of kings who, though once dead, now lives forevermore. Here we are told of a king who returns to the throne to claim his rightful inheritance, to take his rightful place on David's throne where he inherits, not a desert palace that's not good enough for him, but he comes to inherit heaven and earth. So, spoiler alert, If you've not read the full gospel of Matthew, when Jesus rises triumphant from the grave over death, what is the last thing he tells his disciples before ascending to take his rightful seat in the heavens? He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The gospel of Matthew is concerned with the rightful king of Israel coming to claim his legal inheritance to possess heaven and earth. In the words spoken by the prophet David in Psalm chapter 2, the kings of the earth have taken counsel together against the Lord and his Christ, yet the Lord in heaven laughs and he says to his son, ask of me and I will make the nations to be your inheritance. Ask of me, and I'll make the ends of the earth your possession. Matthew opens with a genealogy because he signals us, he signals to us the identity of the one who will inherit heaven and earth as the rightful king of all kings and lord of all lords. So we must stop and ask ourselves, why is this significant? Perhaps you have, like me, Uh, in times past, read through the genealogy and just kind of rushed through it to get to the next bit. But the genealogy is so important. Here we find that even the structure of the genealogy is intended to draw your attention to the kingship of Christ. I don't know if you've ever played kind of uh, code games uh, when you were kids with your friends on the playground, uh, where you would try to invent invent code and messages, play some type of kind of spy game where, you know, A equals 1 and B equals 2, C equals 3, and so on and so forth. So you write these, these coded messages. Well, uh, the, the ancient Israelites would do much the same th- thing and, and use it even to structure some of their genealogies where, uh, remember in, in, in Hebrew, there's no uh, vowels in the uh, Hebrew language, only consonants in, in the writing. So uh, D is, for instance, the fourth letter of the alphabet and V or Vav is the sixth letter of the alphabet. Well, if you add up those letters, let's say you want to spell David, it's D-V-D, four, six, four. 
What does that give you? It gives you the number 14, doesn't it? It's kind of a poetic way of structuring genealogies. You see this not here, but also in kind of extra-biblical literature as well. well. Well, it's something known as the gematria. Well, what we see here is Matthew. If you see, look in verse 13. Matthew makes this kind of curious statement, doesn't he? That the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. What is he doing? He's signaling in coded terms that Jesus here, here is the son of David, David, David. To drive home the important fact that this is the proper royal heir to the throne. This is the son of David of whom the prophets have spoken. The structure of the genealogy draws your attention to the kingship of Christ, but even the genealogy itself hints at the scope of Christ's reign. Notice, I just want to bring out one more thing. Notice that this is a genealogy that's listed with all men, almost, except in four particular cases. Four women are included. How odd. Are these women that you would want to include in your line to kind of brag and boast about? I think any of us, if you said, you know, I, hey, look, I'm the great-great-grandson of Abraham Lincoln, we'd get why you would say that. But would anybody want to say, well, hey, yeah, look, I'm the great-great-grandson of you know, Lee Harvey Oswald or, or something like that? Notice who we have here located. We have the inclusion of Tamar, who's a prostitute. You have Rahab another prostitute. You have Ruth. You have Bathsheba, a woman who committed adultery. You ask, why are these four included? Well, all of them, including Ruth, uh, have a certain degree of scandal surrounding them to greater or lesser uh, extents. Ruth, maybe, maybe not. There's kind of a shadow, depending upon how you interpret uh, that particular section in Ruth with the threshing floor. But I don't think the purpose is to highlight the fact that these women come from scandalous backgrounds, although I think that's important. Because here's a Messiah who comes to sinners to incorporate them into his family. More importantly, I think, is the fact that all four of these women are Gentiles. Notice this. Tamar is a prostitute, yes, but she's a Canaanite. Rahab, prostitute, yes, but she's from Jericho. Ruth, what pedigree is she? She's a Moabitess. According to the law of Mo- Moses, Mo- the Moabites couldn't be included up to ten generations into the people of God, yet, yet Ruth is, according to God's own mercy. It's the grandmother of David. And then you notice here that it's not Bathsheba's name who is listed. Matthew simply says the wife of Uriah. What nationality was Uriah? He was a Hittite. What we see in the pedigree of the family of Jesus is not just ethnic Israel, but Gentiles, all four of which end up pledging allegiance to the Lord of heaven and earth and and are extolled for their virtues of faith despite their great sins. We're given a hint into the scope of Jesus' reign that Jesus is coming not just to be the, the Lord of ancient Israel, but he has come to be the king of Jew and Gentile alike, who possesses an everlasting throne seated not in Palestine, but in heaven.
Finally, the genealogy hints at the work of his reign. Matthew begins his gospel by saying this, the Biblos Genesios, the book of Genesis, the book of generations. What is Matthew implying? Same thing that we're going to see here as we see elsewhere as we work our way through this gospel, that a new Genesis has begun. The new creation is being inaugurated through the person and work of Christ, the Messiah who is the rightful heir to the throne, the one who comes to defang death and to shatter the power of Satan. This is Matthew's point, both in the structure and in the content of this genealogy, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, that the heavenly kingdom is his inheritance, that he has come to possess not just heaven but earth, and that we ourselves have been made his. Matthew 1 is to lead us to the direction of the person, the object of all of our hopes, longings, dreams, expectations, and affections. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that as we consider the kingship of Christ in the coming weeks and months, the good news that you give to us, that you would cause our hearts to burn within us as we confess Christ reigns over heaven and earth, that he has taken his seat and has claimed his rightful inheritance, that he has come to possess the nations. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.